Music, science, cosmic culture. This is the Blue Dot Podcast. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Plate Up for the Planet and the Vegan Society. You can find more information about the Plate Up pledge at discovertheblue.com slash plate up. Don't forget, Blue Dot returns in July 2022 for another extraordinary weekend of music, science and cosmic culture, featuring Bjork Orchestral with the Halley Orchestra and much, much more. Tickets are on sale now. And don't forget to subscribe to the Blue Dot podcast wherever you're listening and leave a review. Hello and welcome to episode two of Plate Up, a special mini-series of the Blue Dot podcast in partnership with the Vegan Society. To coincide with COP26 taking place in Glasgow, this mini-series explores the role that veganism can play in the future of our planet. In episode one, we spoke with experts and notable vegans about the roots of veganism, the animal welfare and environmentalism that inspires the movement, and what veganism means to them. You can listen to episode one now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and at discovertheblue.com slash plateup. In this episode... We'll be diving into veganism for climate change, the main challenges facing the environment, the role of diet and farming practices, and the alternatives that could save the planet. We'll be speaking with climate change expert Andrew Sims, one of the founders of the Green New Deal in the UK, and the creator of the now world-renowned Earth Overshoot Day and finding out why veganism could play a role in fixing almost every food-related cause of the climate crisis, from biodiversity loss and deforestation to food security and water scarcity. I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is the Blue Dot Podcast, in association with the Vegan Society. While there are a number of factors and challenges in the climate crisis, the underlying issue is an overuse of resources. For example, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations predicts that 1.8 billion people will be living in countries with water scarcity by just 2025, partly as a result of the incredibly water-intensive processes involved in livestock farming. And animal agriculture is known to be causing up to 91% of Amazon deforestation, effectively destroying the lungs of our planet. To give you an example that's even closer to home, every year the average Briton uses three times more than their share of the Earth's resources. This vast disparity between the Earth's limited resources and what we use was the inspiration behind Earth Overshoot Day, the symbolic date each year when the Earth's population have used up all the resources that were supposed to last until December 31st. As the population continues to grow and demand outstrips supply, so Earth Overshoot Day has gotten earlier and earlier every single year. Andrew Sims created Earth Overshoot Day in 2006 and since that time has seen this crucial marker shift by a staggering amount. From the relative security of December 30th in 1970 to 2021's Earth Overshoot Day of July 29th. Andrew tells us more. When we were working on the issue of climate change in the early part of the new millennium, 
we thought it was really important to try and get some sort of idea of the degree to which we were over-consuming the resources of the biosphere and producing waste which it could not absorb. So we came up, I came up with the idea of Earth Overshoot Day. This is a way of getting a picture of at what point during the year do you start moving beyond the biosphere's ability to regenerate and absorb the waste from our lifestyles and our economic activity. And what we've seen is that it was back in the 70s that we were in balance, if you like. And we understand notions of balancing economic budgets, but we haven't been thinking so much about balancing our ecological, our environmental budgets. And it wasn't, it hasn't been since the 1970s that we've lived within our means. Since then, we progressively hit a point earlier in the year when we start moving beyond the biosphere's ability to provide for us, regenerate and absorb our waste. And it's getting earlier and earlier in the year. So what that does is give us a sense, it gives us a sort of broad metric by which we can see how unsustainable our lifestyles are. So that's 1970 to 2021. What is Andrew projecting for Earth Overshoot Day in the future? So Earth Overshoot Day has moved forward. It now falls at the end of July. It fell on the July the 29th this year. And if you look at the projections, and the likely patterns of our consumption of resources, and you look at even some of the more kind of conservative assumptions about the pattern of fossil fuel use, increasing fossil fuel use, hard to imagine that that is the case, but that is what the projections are showing, then that date is just going to get earlier and earlier in the year. And as it does so, we are gambling with our life support systems because change is non-linear and you can hit a point and not know when it's going to come that a an ecosystem might collapse. So all the time that we're doing this, we are putting ourselves out on a limb and playing a very dangerous game with our life support systems. Greenhouse gases are driving the climate crisis, the biggest threat to the future of our planet. Ultimately, the driver of climate change is carbon. That's where the idea of the carbon footprint and carbon taxes have come from, a way of measuring the impact of our daily lives on the future of the planet. And when we consider carbon impact, veganism speaks for itself. Studies have shown a global conversion to a vegan diet could reduce the food-related carbon footprint of the Earth's population by 48%. And when you consider that meat accounts for nearly 60% of all greenhouse gases from food production, with beef alone accounting for a quarter of those emissions, that could make a massive difference. For many, though, this statistical reality is still up for debate. Here's vegan writer and the co-author of Think Like a Vegan, Emilia Lees. There's The statistics are irrefutable that animal agriculture produces a variety of negative impacts on society, whether it's emissions, whether it's acidified environmental impacts on the communities that have animal agriculture on a large scale in their communities. I think those facts are irrefutable and absolutely people need to know about them. Alongside the direct greenhouse gas emissions of meat-based diets, the secondary effects of biodiversity loss and deforestation themselves reduce the ability of planet Earth to sequester carbon. Research has shown that if nothing's done, we're set to lose 9% of all natural land in the world by the year 2100. Purely as a result of diet. 
Meanwhile, modelling has shown that shifting to diets with reduced animal products could reverse that, bringing about an increase of seven percent of natural land and biodiversity over the same period. With the effects being felt in the tropics, where it would undo much of the damage that's been made, and in the northern hemisphere, where new natural land would develop. When the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change published their groundbreaking report on the 1.5 degree temperature target in in 2018, they made the observation that meeting this target is going to require rapid, unprecedented, and far-reaching change in every aspect of our lives and and economies, and that obviously includes food. And food was one of the big three areas that the IPCC picked out for action. And part of the reason that's important is the food production uses up about half of the Earth's habitable land area, and varying sort of between countries in terms of the climate change causing emissions from the whole food production cycle. That that ranges anything from a just over a fifth, 21%, up to well over a third, 37% of global emissions coming from food systems. So it's obviously huge. And we know that diets that involve meat eating, and especially red meat eating, are some of the worst offending and most high emitting, notwithstanding the ethical questions about, about livestock. So we know that making a shift to more varied plant-based diets will make a huge contribution. And we also know through things like the kind of the social contagion effect is that when people make changes and you know they, and they and they let they let it be known that these have a kind of a social contagion effect that it kind of it, it validates and gives other other people permission to make the changes in their own lifestyles as well and sometimes we can dramatically underestimate the desire for change that's out there i remember living in london on my high street there's the kind of a very popular bakery there which many high streets have called Greg's and when they almost jokingly introduced a vegan sausage roll a couple of years ago they were overwhelmed by the response and in my local one in South London, they couldn't get their hands on them for two weeks because um, because the demand was so great. And we've seen really rapid changes in, in, in dietary habits taking place now. So it is a vital area of change. It is an area of change that once people engage with, they become more aware of other issues relating to it as well. So it becomes kind of kind of a ladder of change, if you like, too. So I think it's incredibly important. As well as the effects of meat-based diets on the planet through the disastrous effects of climate change, there's also the effect it has on the world's population. Animal agriculture is an inefficient way of feeding the planet, and with so many living in hunger or poverty, it's worth considering how plant-based agriculture could make a difference here too. A meat and dairy diet is by its very nature wasteful. Crops, like cereals, are grown to feed the livestock, we then slaughter to feed ourselves. For every 100 calories fed to animals, we receive back only 12 calories by consuming their flesh and milk. And that's important when we discuss what's referred to as food security, what the UN describes as access to sufficient, safe and nutritious food. The amount of crops currently being used for feeding farmed animals could feed 3 billion more people. The food we eat isn't the only issue. So is the amount. And not just the amount we consume, but what we don't. 
Waste is one of the biggest factors in food's role in climate change, with the WWF reporting estimates that a third of all the food in the planet goes to waste, and between 6 and 8% of all human-caused greenhouse gas emissions being caused by food waste. Hand in hand with food security is water scarcity. A recent report from the UN showed that without significant global policy change, the world could have only 60% of the water it needs by 2030. And one of the main factors? You guessed it, animal agriculture. We're using up the world's water too quickly, and our current practices are polluting what we do have. Agriculture is the number one water polluter, with slurry from cattle and other livestock polluting groundwater, streams and rivers. The livestock sector is one of the largest sectoral sources of water pollution. And when we talk about what's at risk for the planet, one of the smallest creatures is one of the most important. That's right, bumblebees. They're in danger as a result of demand for animal products too. Overwhelmed by mass breeding and farming of bees for honey production, the number of native bumblebees and other nectar-foraging insects are in decline. That's important because bumblebees pollinate both crops and wildflowers and so have both a direct and indirect relationship with the food we eat. Without this pollination, a domino effect of food loss begins. Our existence without bees would be more precarious and our diets would be dull poorer and less nutritious. When you consider that some of the plants grown for livestock feed, such as clover, depend at least partly on this very bee pollination, it paints a stark picture, like a snake eating its own tail. Consuming animal products actually has the effect of destroying the very resources animal agriculture relies on. All this is to say that the current scenario is a house of cards. Intensive farming's inefficient use of land and resources and its damaging effects on biodiversity and soil quality are a huge factor in creating a climate crisis tipping point. So, what will happen if nothing's done? Back to Andrew Sims. So we're already seeing the effects of the one degree change. And what we know is that from the current commitments that countries have made to take climate action, even if they are all fully implemented, and that almost never happens in the international community, then we know that we're heading to around about 2.7 degrees centigrade. Now, of course, if you hit 2.7 degrees centigrade, there's no guarantee that you're going to stay there because you will have triggered some of the environmental feedback effects, which trigger environmental dominoes and make the problem even worse. Outside of that, from an economic perspective, we heard from the former governor of the Bank of England that if you look at where our economic investments are, that there's enough invested in high carbon activities by all the hedge funds and the, and the, and the big investment houses to push us much closer towards four degrees of warming, which would be catastrophic. And again, no guarantee that you would even stop at that point. And because we know that change is non-linear, we're playing a game of almost like climate roulette, where we could be triggering things that we cannot guarantee that we can control. While individual responsibility and choices are a huge factor in bringing about change for the climate, it's not just about what you or I can do. Government and big business can play their role as well. 
Organisations like the Vegan Society are building awareness and increasing education about the connection between consumption and its effects, and government policies such as subsidies, taxes and regulation could make a huge difference to widespread adoption of veganism. For example, subsidising products with green or biodiverse credentials could not only reduce their price, making them more attractive to consumers, but encourage businesses to prioritise these products. On the flip side, taxing products that damage the natural environment could push businesses to change their practices, and regulating the areas threatened by the effects of meat agriculture and intensive farming could protect them from further biodiversity loss. Alex Sobel tells us a little bit about what he'd like to see more of and some of his hopes for COP26. I mean, the big headlines haven't really changed since Paris, so we want to stay within one and a half degrees warming from 1990 levels, which is becoming increasingly difficult to achieve, and to reach net zero carbon by 2050. So that means that for every bit of carbon that we emit, that it is offset by, for instance, tree cover or ocean cover in terms of of, uh, CO2 saturation. So the big underlying problem is, and this is not just a partisan point, the um, UK Committee on Climate Change have reported on this continually, is that the government are falling further and further behind that level of ambition. So what's heartening is the government continually raising their ambition. And actually, you know, some of the things we've called for are now beginning to happen. So we call for an earlier staging date on the banning of the sale of petrol and diesel cars. And the government listened to that and brought that forward to 2030. But there'll still be a second-hand market in them, but new cars will all be electric mainly, but there might be some other forms like hydrogen. But hybrid cars will carry on being sold till 2035. So that's an example where action's been taken and things have been listened to. But we set these carbon budgets every five years, and they're linked to what's called the national term in contributions, which is what every country has to come to COP with every year. And we're continually ratcheting them up, and the UK is. And I'm not being critical of that, but the problem is, is that is that we're making these promises and we're not keeping them. And then every time you fail to keep them, you have to then make a bigger promise the following year, and the following year, and the following year, because there's no negotiation with the climate. You can't negotiate with it. You know the physics of it is immutable. So the government need to move much more quickly. They need to, one, catch up with already, where they've already fallen behind and then get to that point and keep to it. And that means radical decarbonisation in society. And just the, the way they're acting and the issues they're bringing forward and the legislation they're bringing forward just doesn't fit with that. So, you know, I'll give a couple of examples. So one is home heating. You know, nearly everybody who's watching this will, will have gas central heating, Right. Now, that is incompatible with our climate change targets. The government haven't brought forward a large-scale plan to decarbonise home heating. And actually, they're failing on insulation as well, which is the other part of, the, sort of that, because obviously, if you have fully insulated homes up to what we call passive house standards, the need for heating drops massively. So, so they're not doing either of those things at scale. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about heat pumps but there isn't a program for heat pumps. There's a lot of talk about hydrogen, but there's no program for hydrogen. There's a lot of talk about industry heating power, but there isn't really a program. Some local authorities are doing it, but not at scale. It's not as carbon intensive as gas and treating, but it still produces emissions. So that's one example. You know, an- another example is the government's jet zero. So it's it's not really practical to say that in 10, 15, 20 years even, people will be able to go on holiday like they do now in an electric plane. Just nobody thinks the technology is going to be in place. There is continuing 
efficiency of jet engines so so emissions of individual planes are coming down but it's too slow and it's not and it's not compatible with our targets there isn't also not really much agreement about who's responsible for international aviation emissions because they're international domestic's different because they're all yours but international is and and again this cop i'm hoping that this cop will come to an agreement on international aviation shipping emissions so that we'll know who owns them and how they have to deal with them and it'll be included in their national term and contributions and that's really important but then in the uk the government has to decide how to deal with that they're allowing airport expansion to continue they're allowing you know a growth in passenger numbers and a growth in emissions what i think needs to happen is that they need to look at how they can stabilize that and bring in a regulatory regime so we're not having continuing escalating emissions and jet zero does none of that it is just a bit of branding exercise it doesn't really mean anything for the musician and activist moby there are some clear-cut initiatives government can enact to make a difference to animal agriculture and veganism regarding politics i mean it's so it's almost impossible to generalize because there's some politicians who are incredibly you know like they're motivated by altruism they're really trying to do a good job and then there are other politicians who are lying pieces of shit and then there are other politicians who just want to like feel powerful and then get a corporate lobbying job afterwards. So it's like, it's hard. I think it's almost impossible to generalize about as regards politicians. And on one hand, I'm speaking more about politics in the United States, like po- the political system in the United States is by definition frustrating. And it's also incredibly antiquated and needs to be sort of redrawn, but like, the way the political system in the United States was set up, it was set up so that not much could actually happen, you know, because there's all these checks and balances between, you know, the federal, the judicial state and local legislatures. Like it's a, and as a result, people get very frustrated with it. I'm like, but yeah, but when the other party is in power, they can't do much either, which is the good side of our frustration. So regarding politics, To me, there's one simple, easy answer that could potentially unite progressives and a lot of economic conservatives, which is subsidies. You know, as we know, a lot of industries that are destroying the planet are subsidized. You know, animal agriculture is so profoundly heavily subsidized for this, you know, in Europe, the central agricultural policy, same thing in the United States. So my glib, simple answer is stop subsidizing industries that destroy the environment. And I would say, like, my dream would be to create almost like a standard. Like, this is, these should be the standards for subsidizing industry. And one of the standards has to be environmental protection and worker protection. And I would say you create those standards and apply them to all industries and animal ag would be the first one to go, you know, because as we know, like a family of four going to Burger King without any subsidies involved in the production of the food would be spending about 75 pounds to eat at Burger King. The, the cost of meat and dairy is so extremely artificially reduced. And so I'd say just let meat and dairy cost what it actually costs. And you'll notice in an instant people stop eating it. Of course, it's not just about stopping bad practices but encouraging good ones. New technology and developments in regenerative farming have gained plaudits as a viable solution to climate change. 
The recent Netflix documentary, Kiss the Ground, based on the book of the same name, explores the effects of agriculture when livestock and intensive farmers are given the tools to farm more sustainably and their animals are able to roam freely. The film concludes that by changing to these sustainable practices, agriculture can regenerate the world's soils, reversing biodiversity loss and potentially stabilising the Earth's climate, all while providing much more abundant food for every acre of land. Even musicians are getting in on the act, with Groove Armada's Andy Cato finding a second career as a sustainable farmer on his land in France. Andy's farming's had a real focus on the effect of farming on the soil it uses. You can find out more about Andy's work at therealfoodfight.uk. There's a lot to think about, but the positive news is change can be made that makes a real difference to the climate crisis, and adopting veganism could play a huge role. In the next and final episode of this Plate Up podcast miniseries, we'll be talking about that positive future some of the inspiring and innovative changes businesses are making, community and grassroots activism that's leading the charge, and how adopting a vegan lifestyle is easier than ever before. This episode was brought to you in partnership with Plate Up for the Planet and the Vegan Society. You can find more information about this podcast series and the Plate Up pledge at discovertheblue.com slash plateup. Subscribe to the Blue Dot Podcast wherever you're listening and drop us a review if you've enjoyed what you've heard. Don't forget, Blue Dot returns in July 2022 for another extraordinary weekend of music, science and cosmic culture with Bjork Orchestral and much, much more. Head to discoverthebluedot.com to find out more.